Several years ago, there was a uh, group of students who were visiting uh, a Beethoven museum in Bonn, Germany. And a young American student became fascinated by one of the exhibits there, and it was a piano upon which Beethoven had played, but also upon which he had composed a lot of his most important works. And this student became so fascinated with the piano that she began to talk to one of the security guards and asked if she might be able just to play just for a few moments, just a few notes on that piano. And she could tell he was kind of fighting within himself if he should allow this or not. And finally she, let's just say she sweetened the deal a little bit. And he gave in and took a little money under the table and agreed to let her play a few bars on that piano. And so she played a few notes on the piano just just to say she had done it. And after she was finished, she went back to the security guard and she said, I suppose all the great piano players who come here want to play on that piano. And the guard actually shook his head no. And he invoked the name of a famous pianist from that time, that that era. And he said that pianist was here a few years ago. And he said he wasn't worthy even to touch it. Ouch. How humbling that must have been for this upstart student to think, I can play on this piano, and a world-class musician does not think they're even worthy to touch it. Being humble is difficult. It's, being humble is, is not thinking of yourself too highly. We know that. But biblically speaking, being humble is also not thinking of ourselves too poorly or too lowly. In fact, Biblically speaking, being humble really is not thinking of ourselves at all. Instead, it's seeing ourselves in the light of we need God at all times. That's really what it boils down to. But sometimes we can mix up the concept of, hum- of humility with another word, and that is the idea of humiliation. They're not the same. Humiliation is often embarrassing. It's, it's something that, that leads us down a very difficult path. Sometimes humiliation can lead to true humility, but they are not the same thing, necessarily speaking. Humility is an attribute that we need as we live our lives before God. And tonight, as we continue our Sunday evenings on the one word lessons, we're going to think about that word, humility. And to do that, what I want to do tonight with you, and I hope you have your Bible and have your Old Testament with you, we're going to look tonight at three different Old Testament kings. And each of those kings needed to be humble. Of course, we know every person needs to be be humbled. But these were three who needed to be humbled. They needed to kind of come down off the perch a little bit, if you please. We're going to notice one tonight who had to go through a period of humiliation in order to be humbled. We're going to notice one who went through a time of humiliation and would not be humbled. And then we're going to notice one who simply did what we need to do and humbled himself before the Lord. The first king we're going to look at tonight, in fact, it's the text we read together a few minutes ago, is King Nebuchadnezzar. And we're calling his story humiliation that leads to humility. King Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is the king of Babylon, and still in history, his name rings as one of the most powerful men of all time. His kingdom fell centuries and centuries ago, but his name still comes through the history books to us as a very important man in world history. And since he is so well known in secular history, it always fascinates me and may you as well to see his name in scripture and see how certain things in history books, they don't tell us about him. But the Bible fills in a lot of those gaps for us. And one of those is found in Daniel chapter 4. We read 
the ending of that chapter. We read it a few moments ago for our scripture reading. But the entire chapter of Daniel chapter 4 is fascinating to read. And it reminds us that no matter how powerful a person might be, even a monarch, that person is still under the kingship of God. And I want you to back up in Daniel chapter 4 to verse 28. And it tells us, you might recall, that Nebuchadnezzar was walking upon the roof of his palace. Verses 28 and 29 tell us. But his attitude as he looked out was all about himself. In fact, in verse 30, he says, and it seems as if he says it to himself almost, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now, in a sense, that was true. Whether his hands had actually constructed the buildings or not, it was his directive and his idea to make sure that things were in place to where the city could be built and all these palaces could be built. And we understand in a lot of different arenas in life, often the person, if you want to think of it this way, the person at the top of the organizational chart often gets the credit. Even if they don't do all the work, we understand that they have put things in place. They're, they're the leader, and so they, they often get the credit for those things. And understatement of all time, it's difficult to get higher, much higher up on an org chart than the king. That's, that's, it's hard to get much higher up than, than that. But nowhere in this looking out over the city and talking about what had been built, nowhere did Nebuchadnezzar recognize God. And remember that earlier in the book of Daniel, he had already been reminded of God and God's power, even praised God, but still now... This is all his own doing, all to his own glory, all to his own majesty. And so you remember a voice tells him that immediately the kingdom will be taken away from him. And basically, if I may paraphrase, he was going to turn into a wild animal for some time. By the way, verse 32 speaks of this happening for seven times. There's all kinds of arguments. Is that seven weeks or seven months or seven years? Any of those is possible. It is also possible that the word seven is just a perfect number, meaning he's going to be this wild creature until he learns his lesson, until the perfect time has passed. Whichever of those is the case, we know that it happened. Verse 33 speaks of this king being driven from men. And then that famous description that just turns our head, makes our head swim. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. His nails were like bird's claws. This is a bizarre picture, but it happened. There's no other way to describe it except to say that this king was utterly humiliated. It would be difficult to think of anything more humiliating than this, not just to have his kingdom taken away, but to be turned basically into an animal. One commentator suggests that since Nebuchadnezzar put himself in the place of God in his own thinking. God put him in the place of an animal. It's an interesting way of looking at it. But what did that lead to? That's where our scripture reading we read a few minutes ago comes into place. Notice that in the middle of verse 34, this king said, My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now, I find that phrase, my reason returned to me, I find that fascinating. I don't think he was talking about just being reasonable because he had been acting like an animal and now he was acting like a human. That may be it, but I don't think that's all that's wrapped up in that. Could it not be that Nebuchadnezzar finally realized that we are not reasonable until we give God his proper due? Praise him and honor him. And notice that part of that praise that Nebuchadnezzar gives in verse 35 is that all of the inhabitants of the earth 
are accounted as nothing. All includes monarchs. It includes Nebuchadnezzar himself. But what did that make Nebuchadnezzar realize? Did you notice how this chapter ends? Verse 37, the very last line, ends with, Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. It is tragic that it took this event in Nebuchadnezzar's life to make him realize that, to really cause it. It was utter humiliation, but it brought him to a place of proper humility. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. And we can look at a story like that, an account like that, and think it's just bizarre, or that's way back then, that's just awful. But how many people sometimes have to go through a time in this life of utter humiliation to be reminded that God is really in charge? It's tragic, and it's sad, and it hurts, but sometimes that's what it takes. Now, I'm not saying that if we go through a time of humiliation that God necessarily caused that like he did with Nebuchadnezzar, but will God not sometimes allow us to go through those times? Of course he will, and he wants our heart to be changed through those things. Thankfully, in this instance, Nebuchadnezzar got the message. His reason returned, and his humility returned. But there's another king in the Old Testament that didn't get the message. Turn back in your Bibles to the story of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we're calling this story where humiliation leads nowhere, at least nowhere good. Because it is a time in Saul's life, King Saul's life, where he is humiliated. We're not going to rehearse everything that happens in the chapter. We're going to walk through it a little bit. But you recall that Saul was told to lead the people into battle against a group of people known as the Amalekites. And he was specifically told in verse 3, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's about as clear of a command as could possibly be. But you remember that Saul, let's just say he almost followed the command, if that's possible. But he didn't follow it through to the last details. Notice what's written in verses 8 and 9. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And all that was despised and worthless, that they devoted to destruction. So we could say he he almost followed the command, but he didn't follow it. He didn't follow it through and through. And so God sends Samuel to King Saul. But when he arrives, you recall that Saul says in verse 13, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now I'm sorry, I've got a weird sense of humor, okay? But I love the next verse of the Bible where Samuel catches Saul in the lie and asks the question, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? I love that question. Here is Saul saying, I have followed them. You really? He's caught. Okay, I know that's not what the text says. That's what's going on. As he's saying, I follow the commandment, you can hear cows moving off in the distance when God had said, kill everything. He's caught in a lie. And further, Samuel specifically calls out Saul for a sin, and Saul doubles down in verse 20 by saying, I've obeyed obeyed the voice of the Lord. But then in verse 21, he passes the blame on through to other people. Now, it's true. That as 1 Samuel chapter 15 progresses, 
Saul admits he has sinned, but he was never willing to accept the punishment for the sin. In fact, as the chapter progresses, he's told that the Lord had rejected him as king. That's found in verse 26. And he's also told that the kingship would be given to a neighbor, one who's better than he was, verse 28. But I want you to notice what he says down in verse 30. Saul said, I have sinned. If If the verse ended there, that's great. But it goes on. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Now there are a couple of things wrong with that statement. The first is, why is Saul asking to be honored in front of anyone's presence at this time when everything is crashing around him? But more than that, why is Saul saying that God was Samuel's God? The end of the, the, end of the verse, that I may bow before the Lord your God. Why doesn't he say my God or even our God? Something has changed in Saul's heart. For the remainder of his life, For the remainder of his kingship, Saul would never truly return to the Lord. You remember he tries to kill David, who would be the one to rise to the throne out of jealousy and anger. He tries to kill his own son and trap him, Jonathan, when he becomes a friend of David's. It's a case of being completely humiliated. But that humiliation not taking root in someone's heart and leading to something good. You know, stubbornness is a terrible thing to overcome. Here was someone who was caught in a sin and humiliation before some of the people, but Saul did not want to be humbled by it. Instead, he didn't want to lose his position. He, didn't want to, he wanted to save face. He wanted to make sure that no one changed their, their thoughts about King Saul. In the summer of 1986, there were two ships that collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia, and there were hundreds of passengers who died when they were hurled into the waters that were just icy because of the, where it was the time of year. But what made the story even more tragic than just the simple fact that it happened was the cause of the accident. It wasn't a technology problem. The radars worked fine. All that stuff was working fine. It wasn't even weather. There was really no fog to speak of. The cause was later given as stubbornness. You see, each captain of both of those ships saw that the other boat was coming, but neither one was willing to move off of their trajectory. And finally, it was too late. And those ships literally ran headlong into each other out of nothing more than stubbornness to not move off the path that they were going to take. When they came to their senses, it was too late. Sometimes we may have to go through a time of humiliation. But when we do, we don't need to double down in stubbornness like King Saul did. He needed to be reminded that God was ultimately in control. He was told that. In fact, in this very same chapter, down in verses 22 and 23, Samuel told him, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Scripture tells us and experience tells us that pride goes before destruction or before a fall. Saul would not allow himself to learn from a time of extreme pride and humiliation. Now that's a negative story, but I want to end on a positive. I want us to end on something much more positive. And so we're going to turn to King Hezekiah and notice one who chose to humble himself. Turn your Old Testament to near the end of the book of 2 Chronicles. 
We're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And we're going to notice something that, that Hezekiah did. Typically, this is one, the man who's listed as one of those very few good kings of any of the kingdoms of the Old Testament, Israel or Judah or the, the United Kingdom, and rightfully so. There were not very many good kings, but he was one. But that said, when we come to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, we see a time when even this good king struggled with pride, but when he learned his lesson quickly. Notice what's said beginning in verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to them. Keep that phrase in mind. For his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Your Bible may do this. But if it doesn't, you may want to make note of the fact the background of this story is found in 2 Kings chapter 20, and it's also found in Isaiah chapter 38. 2 Kings 20 and Isaiah 38. But you recall that God granted Hezekiah more time to live based upon a fervent prayer. But once that was granted, that's where this account comes into place. Once that was granted, this more time to live, some pride enters the heart of Hezekiah. Hezekiah did so many good things, including running idolatry out of the land, But Matthew Henry, in his old commentary, may have put it very well when he said, when Hezekiah had destroyed other idolatries, he began to idolize himself. That may be a pretty good way of summarizing it. But notice that it all started with ingratitude. That little phrase I had you just mark in verse 25, it said, he did not return according to the benefit done to him. God had extended his life, and yet at this moment, Hezekiah is not grateful for it. Folks, and we're not grateful Pride will enter. Something is going to take over our heart. It's either going to be gratitude or pride. And here, it is pride in the heart of this this good king just having a bad moment. But here's where Hezekiah stands out in our lesson tonight. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar had to be utterly humiliated to finally come to a place of true humility. Whereas Saul had to be utterly humiliated and never really learned his lesson. Hezekiah, we're told, humbled himself. It seems that God threatened this wrath, but verse 26 says the wrath did not come during the days of Hezekiah because of the choice he made. He made the choice to to realize his error and to humble himself. And by the way, in a poetic way, we have words from Hezekiah himself in Isaiah chapter 38, looking back on this account, when he says in verses 17 through 19 of that chapter, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all all sins behind your back. Yes, there was a threat of God's wrath, but this king had a heart of humility. He was puffed up with pride for the moment, but he remembered his place. He is the king on God's throne, of God's people, I should say. God is still in charge. He is not. He had to go through a time that was very difficult, But he chose the right path. Instead of letting pride overtake him, and instead of letting stubbornness overtake him, Hezekiah chose to remember his place and let humility have its part in his life. Many years ago, a writer came across a few soldiers who were trying to to move a very heavy log, and they weren't having any success Their leader, a corporal, was just standing by watching them as these soldiers struggled to move this heavy object 
And this rider on the horse couldn't believe what was going on. He finally asked the corporal, why aren't you helping them move the log? And the corporal replied, I'm the corporal. I give the orders. The rider said absolutely nothing in response. Instead, dismounted from the horse, went up, formed himself with the soldiers, tried as best he could to help, and eventually, with his help, they were able to move the log that needed to be moved from the pathway. And with that task done, he walked back to his horse and got back on. Who was the one who helped? He was the commander-in-chief, George Washington. He quietly mounted his horse, went back to the corporal who had been in charge, and said, The next time your men need some help, send for the commander-in-chief. When you and I get a little bit too proud, we need to remember that there were three kings in the Bible. One who was humiliated and learned a lesson. One who was humiliated and didn't learn his lesson. One, thankfully, humbled himself. But all wore an earthly crown. When you and I get a little too big for our britches, we need to remember that our commander-in-chief didn't wear that kind of crown. He wore a crown of thorns. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross, Philippians chapter 2. And because Jesus was willing to humble himself, it changes our lives and gives us the hope of changing our eternal destiny. You and I have a choice in this life, and it's a choice we must make quite literally every day. Will I humble myself before God now, or will I be humbled when the judgment day comes. When you consider the fact that we're told in Scripture very clearly clearly, that every knee will bow, have you ever considered that those who are humble before Christ in this life will have no problem getting on their knees on that day? But those who do not humble themselves in this life will be driven to their knees on that day in utter humiliation, for taking advantage of, in a negative way, what God has given them over and over and over in this life. That's our daily choice. Will I humble myself before God, or will I be humiliated through all eternity? These kings give us human examples of how difficult times can lead us to difficult decisions. One, a humiliation that leads to a proper ending. One, humiliation that leads to a terrible ending, and one that chose to humble himself. But the ultimate example is the one who humbled himself in my place and gave me the opportunity to remember who I am compared to him, and frankly, it's not very much. I'm nothing without him. We sometimes sing that, don't we? Without him, I could do nothing. And the song ends... Without him, how lost I would be. That needs to be our daily heart, the heartbeat of our lives, that we are humbled before Christ. Tonight, are you ready to humble yourself before him? Are you ready to seek that humility that doesn't think too highly of self, but also doesn't think too lowly of self? Instead, it doesn't look at self. It sees simply that I need God for every breath, every morsel of food, every relationship, every thought, I need him simply to be because that's who I am.
I'm his creation. And the clay doesn't talk back to the potter. Tonight, if you need to humble yourself by becoming his child, saying there's sin in my life and I don't want that sin there anymore, I want a true, pure relationship with him, God will forgive you if you'll come to him on his terms. In your faith, confess your sin, be willing to state that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and then be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. He'll forgive you. Maybe as a Christian, you've done those things, but you're living your life, and maybe it's humility, lack of humility, I should say, or maybe it's something else in your life that's, that's amiss, and you realize I'm not living the way God would have me to live, and I want to humble myself in the sight of the Lord. I want to humble myself and be his servant fully. And you want us to pray with you and encourage you, we would love to do that. Whatever your need is tonight, will you come? Will we stand and sing to encourage you?